Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by BarkBox, a delivery service offering monthly deliveries of toys and treats for your dog. Go to getbarkbox.com weekend to sign up and get a free month of BarkBox. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This time around, we're talking about games that surprised us, in a good way. Occasionally, despite all the hype cycles and glossy PR, a game will look like total crap. But even more occasionally, a beautiful experience shines through and shows us that there's, you know, there's like some wisdom into that whole not judging a book by its cover business. So Rob, this week I played one such game, and it made me think, have you ever had that experience where you looked at something and you're like, oh, Jesus, and then it actually ended up being great? Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to let you punt off that quickly. You've got to tell me about like what game put you in mind of, of this topic. Uh, like, and how did, like, I want to know how that compares to my uh, pleasant surprise experiences. Okay. Well, you know, I was sent a code, uh, you know, from the fine folks at Evolve PR. Love those guys. They do a good job. Um, And it was for a game called Crush Your Enemies. Uh, And this is a little tiny, like a cute little, it's a PC and mobile RTS. uh, Very, very fast paced. You would probably call it an RTS light, uh, you know, because you're just sort of clicking on things and, and, uh, you know, sort of sending your little troops to different areas around a grid based battlefield. Um, Simple, but you know, you know, uh, pretty well-worn mechanically. I, it just looked so unappealing to me. Um, the art is this sort of like barbarians, Vikings, you know, kind of looked a little generic and cartoonish right. in that way that things can look that way sometimes. Well, especially and, like post-Clash of Clans and Boom yeah. right? Like any, any oh, yeah. sort of like cutesy barbarian soldier motif, I'm like, okay. I, yeah, I, that's, I see what you're doing <laughs> that's exactly how I felt. And, and you know, kind of like the beginning of the story is, is pretty eye-rolly and dopey. Like the, the dialogue is very like, oh, we're breaking the fourth wall. We're barbarians. And it's like, it just was not appealing to me. It was just not doing it for me. And it has it has a pleasant style um, in terms of the actual gameplay. It's this sort of like, you know, SNES 16-bit looking. But, you know, off the bat, just looking at it, I was kind of like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know about this. You know, I kind of I kind of went in being like, you know what? All right. It, it's a slow week. <laughs> they gave me a code. Um, you know, I'm, I'd be happy to take a look at it and play it. And, you know, if I, if I think it's, it's kind of worth covering, then cool, we'll cover it. And if not, then, well, no harm done. You know, one of those things. I started playing it and I could not fucking stop playing this game. Like I, I walked around, I was playing it on my laptop and I just sort of walked around from room to room, uh, you know, cursing at my little barbarians and being like, man, I I just gotta, I just gotta get it one more, one more. I'm going to get this mission. Uh, the thing about it that makes it kind of great, and again, this is coming from somebody who does not have a ton of strategy experience, so sort of one of these little light and quick uh, mobile-oriented strategy games is is great for me because it, it gets me in really, really quickly. You're just sort of aiming your little units. Uh, you're sort of putting them in strategic places on the battlefield, and you're sort of leveling them up. You you bring them to the little buildings. Like, one building will make them archers, and so they'll have a different range. They can, you know, sort of go and attack different parts of the grid. 
you know, there's different little buildings, different little areas that you can kind of take over and it all works so quickly and so fast that most battles are really pitched between like one and five minutes. Uh, so if you kind of start screwing up, you, it's like, oh man, I'm screwing up. Uh, I'll just reset. And it's quick and easy. It resets like nothing. And you can just sort of try another approach. Uh, and in that way, it just felt like a really fun little action puzzle game, uh, more so than like actually, you know, heavy kind of heavy lifting in terms of strategy, which is sort of what I like anyway. It's it's sort of what I'm mentally prepared to deal with on a slow day during the week anyway. So yeah, I, I really became addicted to this game. And the, the storyline never took off in any way. It was always kind of dopey, you know, video game breaking a fourth wall might have been it might have caused a chuckle in like 2008. But at this point, it's kind of like, eh, it's, it's all right, bro. Uh, but thankfully, that never really kind of got in the way of me enjoying the actual game. And I, I really kind of heartily recommend this game. It's only nine dollars i think on steam and you know android and ios and all those other things um but it's really really fun and, and actually pretty meaty and has a lot of tons of little challenge missions and things like that uh so if you can like <laughs> stay away from the art and the poopy storyline it's it's really really awesome yeah so i'm i'm thinking i'm thinking about this topic um like I think for me, it's it's difficult for me to like name games that sort of caught me by surprise this way because a lot of times when I'm encountering games, I'm encountering them a little bit, a little bit early. I want to say like, okay, so when I'm when I'm most likely to just like have a book by its cover experience is actually <laughs> going to be uh, like in a preview event. Sure. Uh, because usually if I'm playing something that's like out in the wild, my expectations have been shaped by by you, by my colleagues on Three Moves Ahead, uh, yeah. by just the Twitter conversation. So like there's a lot less going into games cold now. Uh, there's yeah. a, like a, a lot of time. Like, so a perfect example is, uh, you know, okay, I think we were both ready to fully like write off Doom. But <laughs> the thing is... By the time I started playing Doom, I'd already been told that I was going to be surprised by this game. Oh yeah, and I, like, I don't mind that, right? Because otherwise, I would have I would have slept on Doom for six months or or however long. I would have ignored it, and I would have been kicking myself. But nevertheless, it's like the conversation becomes like it goes from well, this is going to be dumb to hey, this is kind of dumb. In all yeah. the right ways, <laughs> yeah. And like, and, and so I, that happens a lot. So when, when I'm when I'm most likely to encounter something uh, is actually during the the preview cycle, uh, where where I don't really have any expectation shaped of it, shaped about it, uh, except by sort of the the foot that's being put forward by PR, by the developer, by their pedigree, stuff like that. And so I find that to be the really exciting moment for me because like, okay, there's nothing crappier than like going out to, okay. Yeah. So a, a an example that I think encompasses both experiences, uh, <laughs> involves two trips I took in very different times, uh, to Petroglyph out in Las Vegas. Uh, okay. uh, the first time was to play a game called end of nations. Uh, if that sounds familiar, it was a game that never did find its way to release, but, the first time I went out there, they were very much like, 
hey, we're the guys who made the Command and Conquer games. Um, we made Universe at War. We made all, you know, we've made all these, these great RTSs, and that's our background. And we're really excited to take that knowledge and turn it towards, like, the MOBA space. Uh, and it, it was sort of an RTS MOBA hybrid. Uh, and the thing is, like, one, I didn't really like Command & Conquer games that much. And two, what they kind of made was Command & Conquer sans like base building. Uh, it was Command & Conquer, except you could only, like, one player would command air units, and the other player would, like, command tanks, and that's how you'd sort of run your army. And it was this, like, kind of big preview event. And the game just did nothing for me. Like I'm sitting there and, and like they're all really animated and they're all, they're, they're really great guys. Uh, like every time I visit the guys from Hunter Glyph, they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. Um, but I'm playing the game and I'm like, I just don't give a shit about any of this. Like this is, this is terrible. Like you've taken, like this is, this is like half of a not great RTS. This is so depressing. So then. A couple of years later, uh, well, actually, it's more like five years later, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sent out there again to look at this thing, uh, Grey Goo. And I was sort of like racing myself. I didn't really want to go. Cause, like, first of all, I mean, like, the game was the game was called Grey Goo, for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it might as well just be called like, called, like Jizz Robots or something like that. <laughs> like, I was just like, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm down for this. Uh, and the other thing, I was terrified that it was going to be like another like misbegotten like end of nations type thing where it's like, wow, we used to make RTSs, but and then here's the other business model we shoehorned it into. And I get out there, and like it was kind of an old school RTS in in, in the sort of old fashioned way they used to make these things, but like I was really digging it. Like it nice. was just a really, really well prepared, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a classic cheeseburger, uh, but like really well done. And so that was a case of like, I had known so much about the studio. I knew about their background. Uh, I knew their pedigree. I knew the last project they'd worked on that had never seen the light of day. And I'd reached some pretty harsh conclusions about what they were capable of. And then I was like, well, okay, I didn't know these guys at all. You know, they were, they're, they're way, they're way sharper and more creative than I've really given them credit for being. Uh, and that was, that was a really cool experience. But for me, that's when, that's when these surprises, uh, tend to happen the most for me because it's just, it's, it's really rare that, uh, by the time I'm playing something, it's like kind of not for preview that the people around me haven't kind of shaped my opinion. Yeah. I, man, back in the day, when I used to go to E3s with uh, dearly departed GameShark.com, I often, <laughs> I often drew the the sort of the short stick in terms of uh, going to certain booth tours. And I, w- I won't name publisher names, uh, but I remember there was one year, and I think this is E3 2009, where I had to. <laughs> Let's just say I had to sit through many a presentation that was not the best. And, you know, I I don't want to make fun of any developers and their hard work, but let's say that there were babysitting, paintball, there was all kinds of of games on offer that were not super great. But there was one game in that booth that just was the coolest damn thing. And it was a game I really, really enjoyed later that year. And it was the sort of the Boy and His Blob remake um, you know, made by WayForward, I think, um, that year. 
And that was just like such a charming, awesome, beautiful little puzzle game that, you know, was a remake of the NES original. Um, but it was sort of like the diamond in the rough of a booth of like clearly like, it was, like a lot of um, this was in the era of a lot of Wii shovelware of, of many, many games that were like maybe could have been an iOS game, but was like a $60 product on the Wii or $50 the, product. Almost the entire Wii era. Like if we're yeah. being honest, like that, yeah. was, that was the days <laughs> when the Wii was a thing. Yeah, it's kind of true. <laughs> it's kind of the case. It was if it wasn't made by Nintendo, it was often like maybe somebody's iOS game. Maybe it would be like you know an Itchio at this point. You yeah, know, it's, sort it's, of on the level of that. You know, it's, it's like people were releasing those like old Tiger Electronics games, but with like a waggle mechanic. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was pretty rough, but yeah, I I remember going to actually like a couple of booths that that there was sort of something like that, and and I would just be like overjoyed to find the thing, you know, the the one thing. There were, God, I had to I had to write up six Imagine games that year. Remember, like Imagine Babies and oh, Imagine This yeah. and Imagine. Yeah, I, I wrote all those up, and then I was like, but next to it was a boy and his blob, <laughs> a cool looking video game, and it was. Yeah, it was kind of that same feeling of like, man, I am I am in for a world of pain, and then and then this shining beautiful thing kind of is there, just pulling you out of the the muck and the gloom. It's a it's a wondrous feeling, <laughs> especially eighty three when you're already like so overstimulated and and everything feels very dramatic, and, and there it is. Well, conferences can make you so cynical. Like I think oh, one of yeah. the other massive surprises for me was um. Years, a couple, like a few years back, I saw a game uh, that's, that's since come out, and I think did pretty well. And uh, if you haven't played it, you should you should give it a look. Uh, Infested Planet. Oh, uh, I have not. This, not yet. Yeah, sort of a tactical RTS. Uh, it's a little bit like it's it's a little bit like XCOM meets Tower Defense. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, but you're that kind sounds of, right. And it's all done with the Starship Troopers veneer. Nice. And the thing is, though, I saw this game on, like, the second or third day of GDC, and I was doing it as a favor to someone else. Uh, like, another <laughs> developer that I'm, that I'm friends with had, had emailed me. He was like, look, man, my friend's got this game, <laughs> and you should really see it. And he, I don't think he has a GDC pass, uh, but he's in the area. He flew out there. Can you, can you check it out? Mm-hmm. And the problem is there's a lot of people out there uh, at these conferences who are kind of there on a wing and a prayer. They're not really at the conference, but they're kind of near the conference. Oh, and yeah. And they're kind of hawking their wares. And there's kind of this air of desperation about it. And, like, it's not – I don't want to make it sound like I'm looking down on people hustling this way, like, with any kind of contempt. It's just that that sort of – that sort of hunger and that sort of like need to get the foot in the door, that hard sell, um, provokes all these feelings in me. Like it's just not, you know, what I mean? it's hard to be around. Like it, like yeah. I start to like, I just like I can't, I cannot be the object of like any kind of hopes or ambitions. Like I'm not ready for that responsibility. <laughs> and like, what if I hate your game? Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, so like you know, I find the guy. Uh, in uh, the park behind uh, what is it, Samovar? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the um, yeah, yeah, the Metreon Park area. Right. Yes, totally. And so we go into the food court, and he busts open his his little laptop, and I'm just like, okay, 
like 15 minutes, like courtesy <laughs> yep. call, here's game. And he wasn't, like, he was a little bit, you know, your classic shy dude. Like, he explained a little bit what yeah. the game was, but I really had to sort of press him for what the what the pitch was. Um, and then I started playing, and I was like, all right, let's see. Let's just get this fucking thing out of the way. Let's see what goes. <laughs> and then it was, and then, oh, that was awesome. Then I was like, then, then I start playing this game, and I'm like, yep. Nailed it. Like, it's like, nice. I didn't really get it. And then I started playing it and I was like, oh, yeah, this is totally like, I haven't played really anything like this before. And the, you know, art style ends up actually really working well uh, for, for this kind of game. And it was just this complete, like, once I'd been able, like, once I started playing that game, I was able to get away from that entire context, that entire setting, like, you know, just all, just all the, all the cruft that comes with being a conference and being yeah. press and, and stuff like that. Uh, and then I was just like really pleased to see like, Oh, this is, this is actually a really clever, uh, and, and, uh, sort of genius game. And that's, that's kind of, I, I think having positive experiences from like, the, the the shittiest, shabbiest, like conference type <laughs> moments. Like yeah. it's always these moments you sort of hold aloft. You're like, oh thank God. Like just when my conviction in like this career <laughs> choice was starting to flag, um, I found this game and it was awesome. It is. It's like a life affirming moment when this happens. It's oh it's so beautiful. I I wasn't gonna actually even bring it up, but but just thinking about it and thinking about context, I I remember having you know, Dropsy ended up being my game of the year last year. It's this adventure okay. game that's very, very beautiful, I think. It has like a very beautiful, beautiful message to it. Oh, I, that, I, I, think, I think the okay. message of the game is beautiful. Okay. It's about okay. love. But I don't it's want about... that clown to get hit by a fucking car. Uh, like, <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I I'm missing the point. I know I'm missing the point. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's that's actually like what I'm about to to say, because I, I, I had an appointment to sort of see this game that's like, okay, a game about an ugly clown. I didn't know much about it, and, you know, I had made the appointment, and this is when I still lived in San Francisco, and I was hosting this appointment at the San Francisco Vox Media office, and there was a scary clown who came to the office and scared the shit out of everybody in the office, and I was like, I think he's here for me. Actually, I didn't know a clown was coming, but I knew I had, I was gonna play a clown game today, and it was like this hilariously weird off-kilter experience that that started out being like, oh, okay, I don't know how I'm going to manage this, and ended up being not only my game of the year, but like that that appointment was really, really fun because I got to talk to Jade Tholen, who's making the game, you know, for, for like an hour as he just played it, and I sort of recorded it and had this whole conversation with him, and the clown guy was just sort of like being like a weird clown in the background. Well, that's, it, it, I, I, I am I am really curious how that made it any better. By the way, I mean it just like, it just was so weird and like just kind of perfect. I don't know. It just this moment of like playing this thing that I had no idea what it was, and I and I was kind of going into it expecting it to be like kind of mean spirited, kind of like oh he's an ugly clown and he hugs people, you know, like a like a you know. Angry video game nerd style kind of stuff. Um, and it ended up being this like sweet, loving, very, very cheerful experience that was, you know, the core of that game is that it's beautiful to love others and be kind to others, even when they're pieces of shit and hate you. And that, it's nice to love them anyway. Right? It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And um, man, that was that was sort of like a, you know, 
it, it wasn't just sort of a pleasant surprise, like, I thought it was going to be a piece of shit and ended up being good. It was more like, I didn't have any fucking idea. This looked weird and I don't know. And then ended up being my game of the, you know, like, I thought the coolest game of last year that even when I was sort of voting in, in goatee stuff, I even put it above Shocker, Witcher 3, and Soma. So, yeah. yeah. So that was, I guess it fits. It fits yeah, our I theme to, here. I, I need to, okay, I need to get a fair shake. Like, yeah. I just, like... Okay, so I actually have a really strong reaction to sort of, um, I'm sure there's a better term of art, uh, like, I'm sure there's a term for this kind of art, but, like, uh, I have a, I have a pretty strong reaction to, like, grotesquery for effect. Sure, um, sure. Like, yeah. to the point where, like, so I, I, I hate most American animation, uh, for instance. Like, okay. Uh, it, like, it took, it, it, it like, at this point, I've had like years of people telling me like watch Bob's Burgers, and I'm like, I just kind of want all those characters to get like smushed. <laughs> like I want those crappy Simpsons knockoff pieces of garbage uh, to all get like dipped into the vat, like in oh Free Frame God. Roger Rabbit. Like that's that's how I react to stuff like this. Oh wow! Oh my! Um, yeah. Yeah. So like yeah, like I think like I I think most Adult Swim characters uh, should be rounded up. Uh, and shot. Um, basically, <laughs> like, I think that's that's kind of that's kind of where I come down on my aesthetic tastes. I think you should tell us how you really feel about this. I don't yeah. Know. So, but anyways, this is this, so this is what I'm saying is like like Dropsy like pressed those buttons. Sure. And I was oh like, yeah. Yeah. The hell with this. Like yeah. I'm not like no. I, I have no patience for Dropsy. I too will reject him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the world in which he finds himself. Uh, like and now, now I feel really now I feel really crappy. It's like, okay. Because that's kind of the point of the game. It though. is. It's it is. Like, yeah. Oh, are you kind of a like an un, unsympathetic asshole who doesn't give people a chance? Well, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what this game is. You love Dropsy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it's, it is. A very deliberate choice, and like I, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's very, very beautiful, sort of in, in spite of, and and very much purposely in spite of the way it looks, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I think something I, I should mention too, like as far as context goes, uh, I will say, Devolver is one of those places that I always kind of want to be cynical about. Sure, but sure. I'm always so sort of tickled by at least elements of their publishing lineup. Yeah. And I've always found their E3 parking lot with all the, with all the, <laughs> the, with the cookout and the Airstream vans. I have always found that to be such a weirdly soothing and relaxing and like life affirming place. Yeah. It's very difficult for me to be like a jerk about the, the publisher. Yeah. Cause like I have rarely been to a place where people at least Outwardly seem to give less of a shit about selling you on an idea than like the yeah. people Devolver do. It's kind of beautiful. It really, it really kind of is. Like I just shown up there and just like had lunch and a few beers just to like get a break from the crowd at E3. Yeah, and then like no, I swear to God, I'll come back to interviews later. But I just couldn't take them in there anymore. And like <laughs> they're always like, yeah, that's cool. Don't worry about it. Come down yeah, later. They're, they're good people. Good, good people there at Devolver. Yeah, well, I think I think Hatchful is probably another good example of things that, oh, like totally. that that thing looked like an ironic comment 
Um, yes. Deus Ex and then like it looked like just one gag, right? Repeated at game length, and that's all it was going to be. And I was like, huh, you know, what a cute little idea. It's it's a pigeon dating sim. Okay. <laughs> and it's not. And it's kind of you know what I mean? That, that's the kind of, that's another example of like um a game that kind of does a does sort of a head fake with you. Yeah. Uh that yeah. Made, it, it looks like this really sort of insubstantial gag. And then it's like actually there's sort of a lot of secret like meaning subtext layered into this that you have to really work to extract. I truly love that. I truly, truly love it when a game is like that. I, when it just wraps something special in those layers of like, hmm, I, I got your attention now, haha, but instead of just being a shallow, crappy hashtag, it's it's actually like a beautiful little novel. That's oh, such a such a magical feeling when that actually works out. <laughs> Well, I think, um, you know, to that point, like, I think a lot of my big surprise experiences um, have come from, like, little browser-based text games. Uh, like, so to an extent, uh, you know, they can be twine games um, sure. that can be surprisingly intricate and, and full of pathos, uh, and that can be really exciting. Um, the game that Everyone always cites, and I, I sort of became obsessed with it until the repetition started getting me. Uh, was Candy Box? Uh, oh, totally. Another game that, like, oh yeah, I'm a crappy little idle game, and you're just going to watch this number go up, and then it just keeps getting freaking weirder. Yeah. Uh, the game that I really did get into uh, that was like that was um, oh, what's it called? Like a, a dark room or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, the one with the wolves and the pitchforks yes, and all the yes, yeah. so starts yes, yes. Fo- you're, yeah, you're in the forest in a cabin and like survivors of some sort of apocalypse keep showing up. Um, and that was a really cool, like everything about that was so simple and the presentation was so sparse. And I think a lot of, I, I, I like in the context of one that appeared and maybe this is my prejudice is showing again and you can tell me if this was ever a fair assumption, but I felt like there was sort of a wave of uh, text-based browser games that were kind of like disguised blog entries. Oh, like it was like yes. super, like super confessional, and yeah, it was sort of like, and that could, that could be done to good effect. Like I think my favorite of the genre was probably Car uh, Allison Sacrilege, totally, um, yeah, which which unfolds like an interactive uh, journal, uh, but is so immediate and gripping in its writing that that you kind of get swept away by it, and, and the chains of causality that are possible. Yeah, but that's a really good example. There were also a lot of ones where it was like click to read my next literary snippet. Right. Here's my Tumblr, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so then these games would appear and they're kind of these weird um <laughs> it's unfair to compare them to the the, the sort of like the, the sort of twine games, but in terms of presentation, uh they are also similarly deconstructed. Uh they, mm-hmm. they begin as just these sort of exercises in tone and mood. And then they slowly start to reveal, like, ah, oh, but actually, there's like a ton of systems underlying all this that we've hidden, yeah. and yeah. you have to play detective and figure out what they are. Yeah, that part is awesome. You know, her story is almost kind oh, of in shit. this vein as well. Yes. 
you know, kind of looking like a crappy nine, literally looking like a crappy nineties FMV game and actually having, you know, I, and, and we can go back and forth for days. And, you know, we did on, on thumbs at one point about like the actual sort of the quality of the story itself, but like playing that game and feeling like a detective was phenomenal and incredible and wonderful. And it looked like horse shit, you know, like very purposely, obviously, you know, like actually once you get to know what's going on, but yeah, it, it, did, it didn't look like much, but goddamn, that was that was a really, really cool experience. And yeah, came out of nowhere, too. I feel like nobody kind of knew about it until it was there and had been released. And everybody was kind of like, oh, this guy wrote a Resident Evil, uh, sorry, a Silent Hill thing. And OK, here we are now with this FMV game, <laughs> yeah. supposedly from 1994, you know, like a weird uh, funny broken police database like that's the entire premise and that was that was so rad so yeah feels like that's sort of in the vein of like it looks very purposely like a very crappy thrown together thing but but has quite a bit going on as well i'm trying to think here though do most games that are going to have a big marketing budget behind them and like a uh sort of serious PR effort that will get in touch with you like months in advance of release. Like how often is surprise possible uh, in yeah. sort of the mainstream game space uh, these days? Cause I feel like it's become really, really hard. I think doom is the closest I can really yeah. like, Doom, and maybe before that shadow of Mordor. Sure. Uh, sure. And, and yeah. both of those were cases where um, either because of what had been shown or prejudices about uh, sort of rumors around the, the around the production or or the publisher. Uh, those were examples of things that were sort of easy to dismiss out of hand, uh, but nobody really knew what they were. And those are two examples, but they're, they're a couple years apart. I feel it's just I, I feel it's just really really hard and, and rare now uh, to to have that sense of discovery with like any sort of AAA or or major release major publisher game. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean. <laughs> I thought the, you know, I, I had attended things like presentations for something like The Witcher 3 uh, and thought like, oh, it looks cool, I guess, you know, an open world game with this guy. And then, of course, that ended up being amazing. But uh, but it didn't look like it was going to be as amazing as it was. I think maybe it, it may have taken some people slightly by surprise, but nowhere near the level of what you're talking about with, with Doom and Shadow of Mordor, where people were seriously like... Uh, this again, you know, or or sort of seeing it at E3, it'd be like, it's fine, I guess. I don't know. It looks like an action game. It looks like a shooter. Whatever. Who cares? Yeah. And then, and then it blowing orcs. everybody's mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Assassin's Creed with orc stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm so glad you brought up The Witcher. Because uh, I think it's been two episodes since we discussed it. I know, um, right? We were breaking our streak. Yeah, I'm starting to freak out. Like, I, I moved to California and I'm like, is, is this still reality? <laughs> <laughs> How did I get here? Uh, oh, so The Witcher. Uh, yeah. No, but I feel like The Witcher is an interesting series because I feel like it's a series that has actually managed to have that moment with every single game. Like, I, oh, I feel like with yeah. each game, the circle of people who, like, discover The Witcher increases. And it's this weird, like, cult where it's like, have you yeah. heard the news about Geralt? <laughs> It's like the Americans almost, like every season. A little bit. A little bit. Like that, that <laughs> yeah. word of mouth, that that, that uh, diehard devotion <laughs> yeah. uh, sort of keeps expanding. And um, yeah, so I, I sort of feel like The Witcher 1 was a game I just sort of took on. It just kind of looked cool and it was Polish. 
and I have a thing yeah. for Eastern yeah. European devs <laughs> and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, so I just started beating my head against that, but it took me like four years to actually get through the damn thing. So that was my like Witcher experience, and then I feel like with two, it started to get more attention. You had more people being like, "Hey, the series is is really special." And then somehow by three, even though at that point it had been part of like the conversations I've been hearing for years. I think it's easy to lose sight of how small your fandom is when you're inside it. Yeah. Because Witcher 3 was this really surreal thing because you're looking at, like, you're looking around and you're like, wait, you people didn't, you didn't know what this was? Like, because <laughs> I've been like, this has been the last six years for me. Like, what's going on? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, like I'm, and it wasn't, I wasn't trying to snob you about it. This is, it's this weird thing to realize, like, oh, this, this series wasn't big at all. Like, yeah. this was, this was small potatoes. Uh, now it's big. But it's is, it is a very weird, different thing. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool game. Yeah. Like. <laughs> okay, one, I'll, I'll throw out one last one. Yeah. Uh, the new Hitman. Yeah, yeah. Because the last Hitman game, I think, was not well received. Sure. Uh, and then they've kind of gone in this episodic direction. And then there's, like, time special content. And all this stuff has such a sordid history. Like, this never works. This is always, like, the worst way of totally. releasing game totally. content. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and yet, in this case, it sort of seems like this this perfect marriage. But it's been really funny seeing Hitman sort of reclaim its stature as sort of one of the great immersive sim stealth games uh, after years of kind of betraying that heritage. And to have it happen in this context is is really kind of crazy to me. Yeah. I have not dug into it yet, and I know I need to, because I know, you know, our, our friends on the other, well... On your coast now, uh, are are obsessed with this game and ha- and sort of have been and are digging it so hard. So I'm kind of like, man, I gotta gotta get some of that Hitman action in my life. <laughs> yes, you have to you have to get right with 47, Danielle. I do. I clearly do. I God, I I've just been a little wary of it ever since I I had to review that movie a year ago that was not maybe the best movie. Maybe you know, I think I mean, you it wasn't even the best Hitman movie. Really <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just watch that one and watch Timothy Oliphant try to be an icy cold serial killer, uh, like professional killer, but he's still Timothy Oliphant and he just can't. He just and he's can't. He's still kind of smiling it. all yeah, the time. Yeah. He's still like, the draw is right there. It's always like, uh, this, is, this is a 47 that's always just this close to just like kicking his cowboy booted feet up on a table and like taking <laughs> a load off. Oh my God, yes. Well, I think that's a very good point for us to uh, start handling our weekend correspondence. But first, a word from our sponsor. Danielle, what are you doing? I'm just trying to fashion a dog toy out of um, some repurposed materials from the street. You know how my puppy gets? He gets bored and then he just destroys everything in sight. That sounds like a puppy. I know, right? If only there was like a subscription service that sent me monthly toys and treats for him. Something that'd allow me to give him new stuff to play with without having to take him to the pet store where he tries to destroy everything there. I think you just described BarkBox. BarkBox? Once you sign up, they send you a monthly box of goodies, fun toys, and all-natural treats for your dog. And if you sign up at getbarkbox.com weekend, you can get a month of BarkBox for free. I bet prices start at a reasonable $20 a month, too, and that they donate 10% of their proceeds to rescue charities. That's getbarkbox.com slash weekend for a free month of BarkBox when you sign up for a plan. 
Alrighty, I think it's time to open up, crack open this fresh mailbag here. Uh, our first email comes from Dave in RVA. Dave writes, hi again, R&D. Like everyone else, I've been surrounded by Pokemon Go this past week, but have avoided playing it myself unless you count walking down the block carrying my girlfriend's phone to catch a Growlithe for her since she'd hurt her foot and couldn't go out herself. I've been using my limited data plan as an excuse, but I think my hesitancy, aside from a fear of my own susceptibility to addictive collecting games, has more to do with my own quote-unquote not-a-real-game prejudice. As far as I can tell, Go involves walking and tapping to collect more Pokemon and Pokeballs, leveling up, simple turret defense mechanics for holding gyms, trash-talking other teams, and microtransactions to buy less walking and tapping. It doesn't look like you can actually fight wild Pokemon with, and other trainers, which is the main activity in the old Game Boy games, besides exploration and giving Pokemon silly names. This lack of skill and strategy mechanics leads me to turn up my nose and think, this is just tap fish with nostalgia, a fitness app disguised as a game to trick people into getting exercise and making in-app purchases. But I feel like I'm being too harsh. As the world of gaming evolves and broadens, we've seen all sorts of good things labeled and shunned as not real games. What do you guys think? Are free-to-play Skinner Box-like games legitimate and worthy of their own place in gaming, or are they the new terrible cancer that's ruining everything? Thanks for the great pods, Dave and RVA. Oh, um, I have to say, first uh, and foremost, I wasn't actually playing it myself until I was playing it for my girlfriend in much the same fashion as Dave here, because I was taking her phone with me whenever I was walking the dog to get more... Uh, to get Pokemon and also to just sort of uh, add to the mileage there. Ironic. Uh, so you become enslaved in much I, the I basically of was. Themselves. I, pretty much. And then, of course, I downloaded it and now I've been playing it. Um, <laughs> sort of, not obsessively, I would say. I'm sort of playing it at night. My girlfriend and I will, uh, you know, take the dog for a longer than usual walk. So I think Drake is really loving uh, this game because it means he's outside more often even or for longer he's outside as often but just for longer stretches um i'm enjoying it personally just as sort of an excuse to walk the dog for longer and hang out with my girlfriend and find goofy things and you know i live in brooklyn so there's a million people around at all times of day and night you know i'll go out at one in the morning or two three in the morning even and there's people out who are going to all the places and you can kind of there's kind of this little camaraderie about it, I guess. And yes, you do kind of get to see some, uh, you know, things in your neighborhood you might not know were there. Like I've seen a lot more murals that I didn't necessarily know were there. They're sort of tagged in the Pokemon Go stuff. So I do think there's value to this game. I don't know how long it's going to last as a fad. And as an EMT, there have already been some pretty... Uh, both hilarious stories and not great stories. Like the the not on the not great side, there have definitely been kids who have like run out into the street trying to catch a Pokemon and not really watching where they're going, and that's pretty bad. Um, on the funnier side, the FDNY all ambulances had to put up a sign in sort of like the break rooms or their bases saying like no Pokemon Go on shift. Like you're not allowed to play <laughs> the game on shift because so many EMTs were like you know, maybe perhaps driving somewhere that they yes. didn't need to be to get some Pokemon. And I, you know, this, I, I, I'm not saying that firsthand. I just know firsthand that they put up the sign in all the bases <laughs> that you can't play on ship. So, um, yeah, I'm finding it to be a very interesting little cultural phenomenon that is, uh, 
kind of fun to be a part of, especially just sort of the little social aspects and and sort of, again, like the girlfriend and the dog and the Pokemon. It's sort of an excuse to kind of get out a little extra. Um, but I do think that Dave has uh, potentially some, some legitimate questions here about, um, you know, I, I never like the what is a game debate because I, I kind of prefer there to be a fairly loose definition uh, you know, in terms of, of what makes a game. Like, do you interact with a bunch of systems? Then you're probably playing a game. And, you know, there's a whole set of criteria academics kind of talk about, like, number one, is it, uh, you know, sort of uh, you enter into it willingly because uh, otherwise it's some kind of experiment. You enter into it willingly. You interact with systems. There's some kind of fail state or some kind of win state somewhere along the line. You know, these these are the things that make a game in terms of academic vernacular. But I do think... Dave might have some legitimate concerns about turning his nose up uh, at, at certain aspects of this. And, and you know, potentially this could just kind of turn into yet another kind of crappy app that's just a, a phase and a fad and that sort of thing. Without getting into that debate you alluded to just now, I think mm-hmm. um, right now it, it seems to me like whether or not Pokemon Go like kind of works as a game it's undeniably special as an experience. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's kind of the, the real point is that there, there's two things. One, one that you mentioned, I think is really cool is like, I keep hearing from people that like the locations, this game sort of pings are kind of these hidden gems or landmarks within neighborhoods yeah. that maybe are otherwise commonplace. And it's, yeah, it's, of, it's really cool. Yeah. yeah, it sort of makes you realize that, like, the world is a cooler and richer place than maybe you gave it credit for being. Uh, <laughs> you just never stopped and look around. And that's, that's an awesome insight for, for a game to, to sort of give you. The, the other thing is that, and maybe it's just, like, where I'm at right now, which is time to move to a new place, or maybe it's, like, the, the, the various political moments uh, in the country right now. I think there's mm. something really sort of powerful and cool about a game that sort of exists to break the ice and give people a way of seeing they have something in common with complete strangers uh, to make you feel like you're part of a community, uh, even if you don't know each other, rather than just like these sort of atomized individuals. Yeah. And uh, I can't knock that. Like, I might wish... I might wish it, that it was like a real Pokemon game once you yeah. caught these fucking things, right? Yeah, like, totally. I, I might wish for that. Uh, and maybe one day it will be. Uh, but what I can't deny is like I was in a park, you know, this past weekend and I keep si- I kept seeing like, you know, groups of people flocking, um, also <laughs> like little like flocks of starlings and stuff. Yeah, so, like, totally. You see people rushing <laughs> with their phones toward... Uh, a pavilion or something, and they, they all stand there for a minute, and they all like sort of smile and exchange glances, and then they all sort of break <laughs> apart and run off in, in different directions to, to whatever the next location has been pinged is. Uh, and that's that's really cool. Uh, that's yeah. there's there's something kind of beautiful in that, and I can't I can't bring myself to really be churlish about the quality of the game part. Of, yeah. of the program that, that has caused this kind of behavior. Not yet. Not yet. Like, give, give me a few weeks and I'll be a contrarian <laughs> uh, douchebag about the entire thing. 
but I'll be like, I'll see you, Professor Bogos, and I'll raise you, you know, hundred disdain points. But I'm not there yet, uh, and right now I'm still kind of tickled by the way this thing kind of breaks down barriers. Yeah, it, just tonight, um, you know, my girlfriend and, and my dog and I went for a little Pokemon hunt, and we were in a park near to us, and. Yeah, I mean, several things. You know, we didn't notice necessarily that all the gates to the park had a different animal on them. And it's like, oh, oh, that is that is a dragon. Okay, cool. That is a bear. That is something else. It's like, oh, you know, it's awesome to look at that. And as I was sort of looking at that, somebody, um, you know, came up and there was a whole group. And, and it's really, really nice because it's there's no kind of rhyme or reason to the kinds of people. It's like all, all people of all ages, all colors, all races, you know, kind of thing, all, all kind of running in and, and having fun with this stuff. And... You know, people just kind of make friends. They're trying to like, hey, what team are you guys? Oh, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's, you know, it's like an adult, you know, talking to a kid or, or, you know, an adult talking to another adult. And it's just like this kind of friendly, kind of kooky thing that's happening. I, um, <laughs> on my, on my ambulance, apparently the other day, uh, a bunch of kids came up to the ambulance and they were like, hey, you got any Pokemon in the back there? Because they, they wanted to ride in the back and see, you know, see what, <laughs> if they could get more because, you know, the call area is wider and they get driven around kind of thing. So there's a lot of, uh, kind of hilarious camaraderie around I it, really sure. want like another season of like rescue me or like <laughs> something like bringing bring out the dead uh, yes. but set in the era of Pokemon Go oh my god that's literally my life right now it's pretty good <laughs> uh, alright our next email comes from Matt Joseph Diaz uh, hi Robin Danielle you've both spoken a lot about moving of late and I can definitely identify with the strange and horrifying wonder of being in a new city three weeks ago I moved from Brooklyn, New York where I and my family have lived my entire life to the Twin Cities in Minnesota in order to live in a more affordable place while I shift careers to being a full time writer and a public speaker one of the strangest things I've noticed is the feeling of being a child lost at the mall since you really don't know where anything is for a while, and the town around you begins to seem larger and more intimidating than it is. On top of that, I work from home, and as such, I don't have a commute to force the lay of the land upon me. That being said, Pokemon Go, flawed as it might be, has taught me more about my neighborhood and the cities around me as it turns popular landmarks into spots that reward you with items. So my question is this. You've discussed previously about comfort foods in video games, but have you had any gaming experiences that have helped you to actually learn certain habits or skills in the real world? I actually have kind of a funny one. Um, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned it before on this podcast, but I feel like I've talked about it in, in some context before. But um, playing the 3D Zelda games actually really helped me sort of figure out 3D navigation and sort of uh, figuring out a place and sort of making landmarks in my head. And this is all before I could drive. You know, I was playing that game when I was 14 or whatever when it came out. And and kind of like, it really helped me kind of figure out how to read a map, basically, in, in sort of a, a, a real-world adult sense of the word. Uh, it made me really kind of suss out uh, the directions and and all that kind of stuff. And to this day, I have a really good sense of direction because I started playing a lot of games like that that have, you know, fairly complicated 3D spaces and, you know, sort of different rooms to navigate and different challenges in each room and different kind of, uh, you know, sort of different layouts that make sense. Now, I definitely don't, uh, you know, do combat with whatever... <laughs> um, goblins and and weird creatures in my everyday life but 
but the reading a map part and the navigation part does help me quite a bit, especially when I'm kind of running in a new city. Uh, running being the way I like to sort of learn uh, streets in a new city. So that's definitely a thing. And I feel like there are certainly some sort of uh, tactile things that I, I feel like I've learned that I've, I feel like I can apply it to things like, you know, editing video or sort of working in Photoshop. There are certain games that I feel like just the act of playing sort of fine tune, fine motor skills kinds of games have made me a little bit quicker with uh, those kinds of skills, computer skills. I think for me, I haven't really found too many games that like help me get acquainted with a new place too much. Um, I, that, that's not to say the skills haven't helped to some extent. Like I think I've, sort of developed an enthusiasm for exploring new places in part because of games. Uh, yeah. But as far as things that like transferred out of video games uh, into the real world, I think for me, the, the only thing that's probably really helped uh, materially at times has been racing games, racing sims. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like, like to the point where like, I am pretty sure like I've had some things that, if I hadn't been prepared for like emergency defensive driving uh, by years and years of like pretty serious racing sims, like I'd have probably been totally screwed at least a couple of occasions. Sure. Um, like, cause, like I, you know, the thing that I vividly remember is um, when I used to commute up to Green Bay uh, from Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, it's about like a thirty-minute drive up uh, forty-one in Wisconsin, and during the winter. In Wisconsin, it just gets uh, like there's 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 no real windbreaks along that road. When snow comes in, um, it's it's snow on top of a bed of like hard pack ice. Uh, visibility oh, can drop really quickly, um, and then a lot of people are just shitty drivers. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> and I also felt that they were a little worse in Wisconsin because they thought that being from Northern Climb sort of entitled to be good uh, <laughs> cold-weather drivers. Yeah. Uh, there's sort of a weird conviction that, like, well, I'm from Wisconsin, so I can totally do 70 uh, on this road. And it's like, well, you can't, man. You're, you're in a 93 Tercel. Like, what are you doing? Um, but the thing is, like, so, so the thing is, it's very hard, unless you're going to pay a lot of money to go to, like, Skip Barber, uh, like, performance driving school or something, it's actually really hard to train for the moments where shit's going to go bad. Oh, yeah. Uh, behind the wheel of a car. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure, like, flying school has these, has these issues as well, right? Like, it's, you know, you don't need, you don't need a really well-trained pilot for the moments where everything's, like, freaking fine. What you need is the pilot for those moments where, like, multiple systems have failed. Um, and now it takes some actual, like, know-how to, to survive an emergency. Um, so like most people, like, you know, by the time you, by the time you've learned to drive and, and even with years of experience, the odds are really good. You just haven't faced that many really like fast developing, uh, bad situations behind the wheel of a car. But yeah. like racing sims in particular, not like arcade racers, but like, you know, the, the type of sims that I was really into, uh, like the Simbin games and, and stuff like that. Like, those are entirely about feeling sudden loss of traction, right? Of knowing the instant that your car is not out of control yet, but if you make one wrong input, it's going to go away from in a heartbeat. 
Sure. And so, you know, that was something that happened multiple times over the course of that, that winter I was commuting in Wisconsin where, you know, you'd be driving along and just caught up in these sudden storms and people around you are starting to drive really erratically. And I had a couple cases where like, you know, someone in front of me is, is in the process of, of going into a tailspin, uh, sort of having the, the sort of the back step out, uh, basically at, at pretty high speed. And like, you know, I'm trying to evade, but if I twist the wheel, like I'm going to lose it as well. And I'm in traffic. So I had a lot of moments where it was just like some really dicey stuff. But yeah. the thing that was always there for me is the fact that like these weren't new situations for me. And that was, I think, the difference is that, well, I'd already, I'd already done this like a hundred times before so even though it was for real it was something that was also familiar and had already been sort of loaded into the muscle memory uh which i'm really grateful for yeah that stuff is so terrifying and i'm i'm really glad that you played all those games and didn't die basically (laughs) i am glad you are here with us yeah yeah for that um uh, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, uh, there's there's nothing there's there's nothing as exhilarating as almost being in a car accident, but not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's kind of how it feels. It's like those moments where you're like watching bad shit unfold in your rear view, and you're like, I was, I was almost in the middle of that. Uh, I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's also like you feel crappy, right? It's like, yep. Those people are definitely getting towed out of here tonight, but I'm going home. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a little tiny bit of survivor's guilt, but mostly survivor's yeah, yeah. elation. <laughs> totally awesome. Our next email comes from Jason. Jason writes, "R and D. In your last episode, you two briefly discussed teaching with games." Rob points out that his 3MA co-host Troy Goodfellow's argument that games in the classroom are problematic as they have their own hidden curricula. One of the reasons for this is that you can interrogate a text, whereas a game simply envelops you in a system and rewards you for complying with that system. The point about games enveloping you in the system and teaching you to inherently accept that system is very strong and a very correct point, one that I think most people do not think about. What is underdeveloped is that this argument assumes that games are a system, whereas academic texts are somehow not. This is actually something that uh, Louis Althusser, I'm sorry, I am not an academic, but I'm going to just say Louis Althusser, points out in his 1970 essay, Ideology in Ideological State Apparatuses, Apparatuses, Apparati, okay, which among many other things points out that ideology is inescapable. You cannot be outside of the system because even if you are opposed to it, it has necessarily created your opposition and thus you are merely a function of it. This is a woeful simplification, obviously. Point I want to get back to, though, is the assumption that other writing is somehow immune to the imposition of ideology or hidden curricula, as Rob calls it. Actually, it's simply more hidden because it exists in the world, which is large and difficult to parse, whereas a game is necessarily more contained. I'm currently a PhD candidate and teach a composition and rhetoric course that focuses solely around video games based on this very idea. That games are trying to communicate with us, even if that communication is hidden within the gameplay. An easily accessible example is that of Splinter Cell Blacklist. Uh, It has Sam Fisher torturing a prisoner in Guantanamo Bay, and that information being directly relevant to him tracking the main terrorist. The lesson, 
Torture is the necessary action to stop the terrorists. While in my particular course, examining how actions and systems express messages and relating this to systems in the real world and how they convey meaning to individuals is a very specific point of the course. The recognition that these things are going on is widely understood among other academics in other fields. While I understand Rob's objections, they are also only the very first step in an academic discourse that has, I believe, moved far beyond that in examining the mechanisms of how systems create narrative, with people like Ian Bogost being at the forefront of scholars examining what he calls procedural rhetoric. You two had a good discussion on the topic, but I felt the area was a little glossed over and wanted to speak up from the point of view as of an educator to clarify a little. I just want to say thank you, Jason. Um, I, I, I think I was sort of stumbling towards the idea that, that we, you know, everything has an ideology, that everything has... Uh, you know, the author's fingerprints all over it, whether they want it to or not, or, or consciously did that or not. But I definitely did not articulate it in, in this uh, wonderful fashion. Uh, so thank you for, for bringing that up. Nothing is ever simple. We live in a world of infinite complexity and infinite uh, sort of ways in which that world has influenced us, I suppose. Again, here I am stumbling. Thank you, Jason. That was very articulate. <laughs> Yeah, um, it is. I I, I feel like I, I need to I need to hear a, a little bit more about this because because the issue I have with the Sam Fisher uh, like the, the the Sam Fisher anecdote right is that it is such a um, straight from the shoulder example of like sure. ideology that its message is pretty explicit. Like it's pretty like the game of being very upfront about sort of what it's what what it's communicating to you. Uh, and it's, you, you have to look very, you have to try very hard to sort of not notice the way it has framed this dilemma and the action to resolve it and the outcome. Uh, you, yeah. you'd have to sort of miss all of those things and sort of try hard to miss all of those. Where I start to, like, coming from a strategy game background, it's, I think those things have massive potential to be educational tools, but at the same time, I'm also very familiar with the way those systems are sort of nested together in ways that what the what they're communicating is a little less straightforward because you're spending so much time trying to parse how the systems do work and what the point of the game really is. Sure. That it's harder to access that second level of consideration of, okay, but like what assumptions are baked into this right? and what is it sort of trying to get me to sort of accept without really questioning. Uh, So, I mean, that's, I I guess that's kind of where, where I end up a a, a little bit with, with with regard to this. I, I feel like academic texts, most of them, by very by 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 the virtue of the way academia works, uh, once working well, <laughs> uh, is that they they at least try to be above board about the various things that are influencing them. Right? It's it's usually there in the introduction. It's there in the lit review. Uh, it's there in the citations. It's there in the things it's arguing against. It's not hard to parse in an academic setting. Uh, where a where a work is positioning itself in the discourse, 
Um, gangs have no tradition like that, as far as I know, really. And I think that can make them a little bit murkier. Now, the objection I can hear is that academia absolutely has all those assumptions baked in. It just gives you the illusion of, right. of being upfront and above board about it. But really, it's, it's actually even more like it's even deeper in the weeds. Um, and that's especially true. And that's especially true to the, uh, thanks to the nature of academic publishing uh, in particular, in which leaders and fields are basically given veto power uh, over which ideas actually uh, get wide distribution in prestigious journals. Point being, uh, I, I, I think academic texts at least make it a little easier to be aware of the biases and assumptions baked in. Uh, I think uh, Bruce Garrick and I had a conversation uh, over email a few months ago. Um, I just read a really exciting book about uh, the Battle of Midway, Pacific Crucible. Uh, still a great book, a, a, just an absolute blast of, of, of history. Uh, it was really gripping, some really beautiful writing. It's by Ian Toll. Uh, but so I was really high on it. And I emailed him, and he was sort of like, he was, he sort of, uh, he yucked my yum, uh, as oh, you no. would put it. Yeah. 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 Uh, but but, but his, his argument was pretty good. He was, he was like, I really can't read, um, like, mass market mainstream history. And it wasn't huh. like it wasn't Bruce like being a history hipster. Um, <laughs> all, all the times it sort of seems like he is one. Uh, he's like, oh, you didn't you didn't pull that out of the Kremlin archives ten years ago? Uh, I guess. <laughs> I guess I was a little out of the curtain. I liked um, that before. It was cool. Yeah. But but his point was that those mainstream histories both the way they present information by like sort of hiding footnotes and turning them into endnotes and simplifying bibliographies, um, they sort of cover their tracks a lot. Yeah. And that makes them actually kind of difficult to trust, especially if, if you really know a topic and you're reading them and you start to realize all the places they're kind of you know, skipping over important, complicating factors in order to sell you a story. Um, and that and that does sort of bother me, right? Like those things are the easiest way to get into a new field, but they're also the most likely to leave you with massive misses, like mistaken assumptions yeah. about the way the world actually operates. I mean, this is definitely sort of the the crux of any accessible media, though, right? Like the most accessible of of any given thing is is never going to sort of fully hold all the nuance and fully hold all of the, the, the really juicy details and the really interesting things and the really kind of the meat of, of sort of whatever it is uh, commenting on uh, because of that, right? You're, it's always going to kind of be shallow on, on purpose because of, of what it is meant to be an accessible mass market kind of product, I guess, if we're, if we're yeah. talking about it. And, 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 you know, sort of even speaking of this stuff in, in terms of products, that's, that's the main thing I kind of keep going back to is, is, is thinking, yes, academics do hold themselves typically to a much more rigorous standard, but it would be impossible for any human being to be objective, fully objective about literally anything. Like, like the system, if you grew up in a capitalist society, there are certain things you assume whether or not you fully agree with them that 
they're going to find their way into your thoughts and your systems of thinking and, and your writing and, and so on and so forth. So I, I really do appreciate Jason's point here about that, about, you know, kind of saying everything kind of is flavored by, by the person's life experiences and, and sort of the, the culture that somebody comes up in and lives in and works in and, and lives and breathes every day. Um, that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile to <laughs> certainly try to parse these things. And, you know, games pretty much, almost all games, almost everything we play is a commercial product. Obviously, there are a few things that are not. You know, there are, there are sort of the, the little personal games on HEO that are, that are more meant to be just sort of a creative expression of one person or two people or something like that. But for the most part, we are always talking about commercial products. And that in itself, of course brings into uh, into the conversation sort of capitalism and, and commercialism and sort of why things are bought and sold. And that's already adding another complication to that, to the hidden curriculum, right, that Troy would call it. So yeah, a, a lot of this is um, way above my pay grade, uh, but I'm, I'm very interested in sort of the dynamics of how we figure these things out and the dynamics of how we I don't know how we find the things that we trust and how we find the the sort of uh, sources of information and sources of enlightenment, I guess, that we can trust and kind of feel good about. Sweet. I guess on that note, it's uh, it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. Rob, are you watching anything, playing anything, listening to anything that is extra special for you right now? Well, yeah, no. It's, uh, okay, so I'm going to give you two things. One is, remember the Seinfeld where George fishes the eclair out of the trash? Yes. Um, <laughs> so this is my trash eclair uh, <laughs> a weekend project. Uh, I'm in the middle of reading uh, Weapons of Choice, uh, which okay. is a book about what if a near future international carrier task force was sent back in time to World oh. War II. Oh. Uh, to the Pacific Theater. And it's not awesome. I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to be real upfront. Like, it's, it's kind of dumb. The writing isn't amazing. Um, and yet. <laughs> and yet. And yet. There's something very compelling about this. Uh, I have no idea where it's going exactly uh, because <laughs> you're sort of set up for it to be like, all right, so this modern carrier task force is going to go back in time and then it's going to kick the shit out of the Japanese. Oh, yeah. Uh, but instead, it all goes wrong because instead of that, they end up getting transported into the middle of the American fleet on the eve of the Battle of Midway. Oh, my. And the Americans are like, holy shit, what are Jack carriers doing here? And then they all open fire on each other. And the guys from the future kind of accidentally sink the entire U.S. Pacific fleet in 1942. Nice. Um, okay. And then they're kind of like, oh, sorry, sorry, we're bad. Um, how can we make this right? Uh, so it's just, but where it gets interesting is that all the characters from 1942, all the people who were from the World War II timeline, this book is very much like, Thinking about like, man, this was a super racist society. Sure, had a different slur for like every possible ethnic group. Sure, um, yeah. it was sexist. It was wildly unhealthy and ignorant. And so they're encountering this 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 task force that's 
a place where you've got, you know, gays serving openly in the military. Uh, There is no more segregation and the idea is offensive. Um, And and so just the way these two groups, these like these two forces encounter each other and kind of hate each other. Like it's this thing where like at first the, the Americans from the future are really excited to sort of meet these legendary heroes from the past. And then really quickly it gives way to this feeling of like, well, holy shit, like, you've gone back to, like, an apartheid version of America. Like, these people aren't really that... These people are, like, in some ways closer to Nazis uh, than they are to you. Um, And that's a really weird place to to find yourself. And so, like, it's it's not really that good. And it, it actually starts to get a little... It starts to get a little troublesome because the way it keeps driving this point home is every 1942 perspective character... Um, it's just the most racist, bigoted, homophobic son of a bitch like you can imagine. Yeah. So like you're spending entire chapters with like characters who are incapable of calling someone black. They have to find just like just a, some other like gnarly slur from the forties. Sure, the sure. Could be one of the the rich tapestry of ethnic slurs yeah. that uh, yeah. my grandfather's generation <laughs> had. Uh, but so that makes it tough to read. But it's kind of at the same time, like it's kind of the conceit is interesting, and I kind of can't look away. Yeah. So that's where I found myself. Uh, that <laughs> I'm certainly enjoying my trash can of Claire. Uh, don't worry, it was sitting on a magazine. Yeah, um, it was totally fine. Yeah, and, and so I've gone on long enough. Uh, that's that's my weekend project. I'll leave the other thing for another day. Uh, Daniel, what have you been into? Oh, man. So I'm going to do a funny thing, and I'm actually going to endorse another podcast. Although, I think it's okay to and do this that. This is Chris Remo just cuts, cuts their audio. Just I know, right? Like, <laughs> my endorsement is Idol Weekend. No, it's... um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It's definitely... Uh, nothing to do with video games, and I don't think it's any kind of competition whatsoever. And, you know, we, we're all part of this brave, beautiful world of, of audio, uh, spoken word, entertainment, and discussion. It is called the Myths and Legends podcast. And what it is, it's basically a storytelling podcast. Uh, the host picks a sort of a legend from just any culture around the world uh, so far, I'm kind of going all the way through the backlog from episode one on. There's been several Arthurian legends. There's been uh, Aladdin, the Little Mermaid, Mulan, uh, several Slavic legends, uh, several Norse myths, um, and actually sort of tells the story of these of these you know sort of popular stories. And some of them are actually not popular at all. They're kind of hidden and and you know from from different times. And kind of uses modern language to, uh, you know, kind of describe what was going on there. They're fairly short. Most of the episodes are around, you know, around 30 minutes uh, to 40 minutes. So they're not super, super long. Um, And, you know, there are some multi-part episodes for the really, really long stories. But it keeps things fairly, fairly breezy, uh, which really helps when we're talking about certain extremely old or extremely just sort of difficult to wrap your head around uh, psychologies from different cultures. Um... One thing that's really, really interesting uh, about it, uh, you know, it's very, very enjoyable from a surface level. I'm having a blast just sort of hearing some of these, you know, fairy tales and myths and legends and and all these kind of just wild and wacky stories from different cultures. Uh, but he definitely 
in the Little Mermaid episode, which is like, you know, the, I don't know, maybe the 12th episode or something, uh, he sort of prefaces the episode by saying, you know, I sort of started this, you know, with a little bit of an eye to mock, to kind of be like, oh, the modern interpretation of these things, or not an interpretation, but sort of the modern, you know, just telling of these things. A lot of this stuff is pretty fucking goofy. Like, it's pretty ridiculous, some of the things that happen in these legends. But I've come to really respect, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these stories and see kind of that kernel of truth and that sort of kernel of humanity in, in all of these stories. But not in The Little Mermaid, because this one is just, just ridiculous and bananas and a terrible, terrible story. Uh, and from the 1800s, so there was kind of no excuse at that point. You know, you, you give something a pass if it's from, you know, uh, pre sort of um, before the tradition of writing things down, if it's just been passed down. But, but after the years Enlightenment, of, you've really got to raise your game. Yeah, you really kind of, you know, there, there's narrative devices that are that are used. There's, there's you know, some semblance of... of uh, structure that we kind of adhere to but the little mermaid apparently was just absolutely bananas ridiculous terrible awful <laughs> story I highly recommend that episode especially if you if you just want a taste of how fun and funny this podcast can be and just really personable and warm i've, I've taken to you know I, I listen to podcasts when i work out and i've taken to listening to this one but i've also been actually cozying up at bedtime uh, you know, with my with my little headphones in and sort of having a little bedtime story. And it, and it might be something really violent and, and weird and, you know, uh, Vikings slaughtering each other and, and dragons and drinking their blood and all sorts of other stuff. But it also might be something kind of warm and cozy. And I'm just having such a nice time, uh, not only kind of like being a, a little kid enchanted at bedtime by these stories, but also sort of getting a little tiny taste of of various cultures and various, uh, you know, cultures at different times in human history. It's been, it's been really, really fun to kind of get into this stuff. I've always had a, a, a you know, kind of a intellectual boner for this kind of stuff, <laughs> to put it in a, you know, really articulate way. Um, I've always been really, really into mythology, especially, you know, Egyptian and Greek mythology, and just have always enjoyed so much hearing these stories that are really quite bananas from a modern perspective, but they were how people made sense of the world. And I will always find those kinds of myths, you know, just very powerful. I will always be interested in creation myths. I will always be interested in sort of the ways in which people have envisioned the world working because it's just such a fun and awesome little funhouse mirror into sort of the values of any given society. It's just, it's just really fun. It's nerdy, but it's really fun. <laughs> so yeah, that's the Myths and Legends podcast. It's uh, mythpodcast.com if you if you are interested in listening to it. That sounds really cool. Uh, I know, I know we, we got to wrap this up, and uh, I shouldn't add another thing to the uh, to the weekend projects uh, folder at, at this point. But what you, what you were just talking about uh, reminded me. Um, there's this game series uh, about a monster hunter. Uh, encountering creatures from uh, Slavic myth and legend. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, it's a Polish series. Um, it's, it's about this guy Geralt, and like every oh. chapter of the game, he encounters like these fairy creatures and murders them uh, wow. and then harvests their head. Um, I think you'd be really into it, uh, to, to be honest. I think I think that might be your bag. Yeah, I think this is totally something I might dig. I mean, what what's this game again? <laughs> um, the Fairy Slayer. 
The Fairy Slayer 3? Wow, I can't wait to get into that. (laughs) That sounds pretty perfect. Man, we can't go a day without talking about our our little game. God knows we shouldn't. We we really, we can't. It's just, it's in our contract. (laughs) Oh, man. I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends and get to some fairy slaying. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you are enjoying the show, or at least can see yourself enjoying the show, please do take a moment. Think about uh, reviewing us on iTunes. It does help us quite a bit. And do tell anybody that you think might enjoy our uh, our words in your ears. Uh, friends, family, relatives, whoever. Just uh, let exes. people know. They might dig it. Just, yeah, just reach out. Hey, Definitely. You know, it's, it's been a few years. Maybe just put that feeler out there and be like, hey, I was thinking about you. It's time to drunk text your ex with our URL. That's definitely what you should do. (laughs) What is that URL? Mighty fine, you should ask. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Text your ex and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Bark box. Bark box. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>